Esther, if you're new this morning, fascinating book of the Bible, fascinating story. I would argue this morning's passage is the most fascinating part of the entire story. And so let's not waste any time. Let's get after it this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter 6. That's where we'll be starting off this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. The book of Esther is just a couple of books prior to the book of Psalms, if that's helpful. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to track with, you can take that Bible as the church's gift to you. We'll call it a Mother's Day gift, even if you're a male. Happy Mother's Day. Take that Bible. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll, we'll get rolling. God, you... You are wise, you are sovereign, you are good. And it is hard at times to see that from within the story. I pray that as a result of our time in this morning's passage in the book of Esther, that we would find ourselves all the more trusting in you, that we would find our hearts functionally declaring what we know to be true, about your character, that we would trust that you've got us and that you are working all things for your glory and the good and the joy of your people. You are a God who is able to turn the tables upside down and show the power of the one true kingdom and its one true king. Holy Spirit, would you move and work this morning as a result of our time in the scriptures. May we walk out of here believing all the more that you are who you say you are and that all of your promises are true. God, work in these moments to come. Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, here we go. Previously on Esther, this, this crazy whirlwind of a story, if you haven't been around from the very beginning, it begins in the palace of the great king Ahasuerus, which is the biblical name for Xerxes, I mentioned in week one, Xerxes, it's a lot easier to pronounce, so you're going to hear me use that name out of the two. Xerxes was essentially the king of the known world, the ruler of the great Persian empire, a god among men, you might say. You can't get past the opening sentence of the story without seeing just how impressive this king truly is. Everything belongs to the king. Everything exists for the king. All seems to be in order of the, the palace of the great king Xerxes, but the king does something midway through the first chapter that sets into motion a, a remarkable chain of events. He calls for his queen, Queen Vashti, to parade around a room of drunken men, and the queen says no. And as we might expect, the king is not a fan of his wife's insubordination, and so he banishes Queen Vashti from his presence forever, which sets the stage in chapter 2 for this expansive, empire-wide version of The Bachelor as the king seeks a replacement for his recently banished queen. And though upwards of 400 young women are cast for the show, we're only introduced to one, a young lady by the name of Esther, who manages to capture the king's heart. She's the last woman standing as the king chooses her, a Jewish orphan, to become his new queen. And it doesn't, it doesn't take long for her influence to begin to impact the story. As Esther's cousin Mordecai learns of an assassination plot on the king's life, and, and Mordecai passes the word on to Esther, who is now able to pass the word on to the king as her queen. That's an important detail to this morning's passage, so hang on to that. We'll get to that in just a moment. Chapter 3 
introduces us to perhaps the most villainous character in all of the story, an incredibly insecure and egotistical man by the name of Haman, whom the king chooses to make his right-hand man, a man to whom Mordecai refuses to bend his knee, which infuriates Haman, and he decides that the appropriate course of action is the mass genocide of the Jewish people, being that Mordecai is a Jew. Haman somehow manages to convince the king that, that this is a good idea and an edict to send out across the empire calling for mass annihilation. As the curtain opens on chapter 4, the Jewish people have essentially been given the news that they have 11 months to live. Mordecai knows that without some sort of intervention, the Jewish people are done for. But he also knows that he can't enter into the king's presence himself. And so he pleads with Esther, the queen, to plead with the king on behalf of the Jews, to beg the king's favor. The only problem is there's a law in the land that says if you enter the presence of the king without being called, it's off with your head. Unless the king, as an act of grace, chooses to hold out his golden scepter, which means that you get to live to see another day. Esther's hesitant at first, as you could imagine, but she ultimately agrees to go before the king, risking her very life. Last week, we saw Esther do that. We saw her enter into the king's presence and find favor in his sight as the king offers to give Esther whatever she wants, up to half of his kingdom. But Esther doesn't ask for the deliverance of the Jewish people. Rather, she invites the king, along with Haman, to a dinner party at which the king once again asks her, what is your wish, honey? And again, she doesn't ask for the deliverance of the Jewish people, but rather she invites the king and Haman to a second dinner party. It's a really strange sequence of events. On the way home from the first dinner party, Haman has what he perceives to be the respect of, of the, the king and the queen, the very approval of royalty, which fills him with joy. Yet he happens to pass by Mordecai on his way home, who once again refuses to stroke Haman's ego by bowing down and paying homage to him. And Haman decides upon the counsel of his wife and his closest friends to build a gallows and to go to the king the next morning and ask for the execution of Mordecai on those very gallows. That's where we pick up the story as we hit the play button on episode 6. It's the middle of the night, the night between Esther's two dinner parties, the night that the gallows are being built for the public execution of Mordecai. Anything can happen here in chapter 6. So let's hit play. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. All right, let me, let me just stop there. there. There's absolutely no reason that the king should be awake in this moment. There's nothing unsettling going on in the kingdom from his perspective. In fact, he's just enjoyed a good meal and some good wine. The king should be nice and drowsy at this point, but he can't seem to sleep. And not only can the king not sleep, but he chooses to, to do the least likely thing that you would think he would do in the midst of his sleeplessness. Right? This is a guy with a lot of booze, private chefs, and a harem of women. He could have had one of his chefs whip up a really fancy midnight snack. He could have invited one of his concubines in for some company. He could have had one of his servants go milk a cow and get him a glass of milk. There are a lot of things that the king could do in this moment. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to have the governmental records of his kingly reign read aloud to him. You talk about boring. That, that would be like having someone read Webster's Dictionary out loud to you as a bedtime story. 
Although maybe the king knows what he's doing after all. Maybe this is his strategy to actually fall back asleep. We don't really know. But instead of falling asleep, we're told that the king is reminded as he reads through this book of memorable deeds, he's reminded of Mordecai's heroics in saving him from an attempted assassination plot, the plot that we're told about back in chapter 2. And the king asks, what did we end up doing to reward Mordecai for saving my life? Target gift card, jelly of the month club, what did we do? And the king's assistants respond with, absolutely nothing, your majesty. And the king is appalled by the fact that Mordecai has never shown any sort of appreciation because for Persian kings, they were notorious for rewarding good deeds because they saw it as encouraging loyalty and establishing morale in the kingdom. And so verse 4, we're told the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So the king jumps out of bed, starts looking for his advisors, without which, as we've seen, he's absolutely useless in decision-making. And even with his advisors, he makes some really terrible decisions. And here's the deal. There's absolutely no reason that anyone should be in the outer court of the king's palace right now, any more than King Xerxes should be awake in this moment. He just happens to be awake, and Haman just happens to be in the courtyard. He's so amped up about asking for Mordecai's head on a platter that he can't sleep any more than the king can. J.G. McConville in his commentary says, This is comedy already. Each of the characters on stage is ignorant of the motives and plans of the other. The king knows as little of Haman's passion to be rid of Mordecai as Haman knows of the king's plan to elevate him. Only the reader can savor the exquisite irony and suspense. Who's going to speak first? And completely throw the other off of his game. In God's providence, it's the king who opens his mouth. And he asks a question that's just vague enough to bring about Haman's irony-saturated downfall. The king asks Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Remember the, the conversation back in chapter 3 that Haman had with the king where he spoke in vague generalizations about the Jews in an effort to get the king to sign off on their destruction? Now Haman's on the, the receiving end of a very vague question, one that he's convinced in his arrogance has everything to do with his own glory. He thinks he's been invited to talk about the one thing that he loves to talk about more than revenge, namely himself. And yet, as we'll see, the king's question will ultimately lead not to Haman's glory, but rather to his demise. Verse 7 says, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Everything Haman's ever dreamed of since we met this guy back in chapter 2 or chapter 3. His idolatrous heart is so hungry for prestige, so hungry for recognition 
that he doesn't even stop like Esther to preface his response with, if it please the king. He just jumps right into it. As the words are, are rolling off of his tongue, he's picturing himself in the king's robes, on the king's horse, being led through the public square to the shouts of, isn't Haman glorious? Isn't Haman great? It's really indicative of, of what we see in the garden in Genesis 3, is it not, when sin enters the story? As the serpent Satan declares to our first parents, you can be like God. And for Haman, Xerxes is God. The closest thing to deity that Haman knows. To wear the king's robes, to, to ride the king's horse is arguably a grab at deity. The fact that Haman, on three separate occasions, uses the phrase, the man whom the king delights to honor, that tells you everything you need to know about Haman's vainglory. Verse 10. I laughed out loud on my back porch and drew the attention of my neighbors as I read this this week. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. Can you imagine? If this was a movie, can you imagine the look on Haman's face in this moment? Not only is the king... Not talking about you, which is a gut punch to the fragile human ego in and of itself. But it's your sworn enemy that he's talking about. The person on all of planet earth that you despise the most. And, and it's not even though uh, Haman gets the opportunity to sit in the royal grandstands and watch this play out as a spectator. No, the king commands Haman to participate by personally leading Mordecai through the city square. This is fabulous. Verse 11, so Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. How, how excited and enthused do you think those words were rolling off of his tongue? He's forced to declare over Mordecai the very words of honor that he thought were going to be declared over him. From daydreaming about your own glory to proclaiming the excellencies of your own worst enemy proverbially bowing down to the man who's refused to bow down to you this entire story. Again, J.G. McConville, very helpful, says, Haman's recklessly hopeful speech produces the best comic moment in the tale. Though for the pretender himself, he's talking about Haman there, it is pure tragedy. The naming of Mordecai as the recipient of the honors is a hammer blow to Haman's perfect but fragile confidence. The blow is the more devastating because the honors were of his own concoction and designed to be as glittering as he could imagine. Now he is instructed to, quote, leave out nothing you have mentioned. And he is himself to be the mediator of the king's goodwill to this hated enemy. Or in the words of another commentator that I read this week, Haman's very own words of self-grandeur must taste like ashes in his mouth as he pronounces those words of grandeur over Mordecai. Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. As, as the curtain opened 
On chapter 4, it was God's people who were mourning. Now, it's the very man who sought to destroy God's people whom we find mourning. The tables are turned. Haman's own wife, probably unbeknownst to her, says something pretty prophetic as chapter 6 comes to a close. If you've made yourself an enemy of God's people and thus an enemy of God, you're on the losing side. Haman is immediately summoned to the second of Esther's dinner parties. No time to even process all of this. And though he's experienced a significant gut punch to his fragile human ego, he has no idea how much further there is to fall. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Esther, in this moment, she finally outs herself. She aligns herself with the Jewish people such that she assumes that if the Jewish people are slaughtered, that she too will be slaughtered. And so she asked the king to spare her life and the lives of her people. Though she doesn't mention the Jewish people by name, interestingly, she does use the exact same language found in the edict itself. My people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Again, you can just imagine Haman in this moment, hoping and praying that the king doesn't ask who's behind this wicked plot. Who who would dare attempt to take the life of the king's bride? Verse 5, what does the king do? He asks, who's behind this wicked plot? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified obviously, before the king and the queen. Think about this. Haman in less than 24 hours, okay? You you think events can't turn in, in our lives. Haman in less than 24 hours has gone from the top of the world to the end of the world. From visions of self grandeur to fighting for self preservation. Verse 7, we're told, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Here's the the fascinating thing about this part of the story. The the king in this moment, he's in a very tricky situation. His reputation is in serious jeopardy. He's ultimately the one who authorized the mass genocide of the Jewish people. The edict was signed with the king's very own signet ring. He really needs an out here, the king does. Is anyone surprised to find that he gets just that in the next verse? Look at verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to find the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? So you, you have the king returning from his palace garden only to find Haman falling on the couch where his wife happens to be sitting. Haman's simply trying to beg for his life in this moment, thinking that he can't beg for his life of the king. And so he falls at the feet of Esther, and yet he falls in such a way that it has the appearance of him accosting the queen. And the king has the out that he needs. 
He can have Amon executed without having to publicly mention the authorization of mass genocide as his reason. Which, by the way, going back to the end of chapter 6 this morning, Haman's falling down before Esther is a fascinating fulfillment of the words of Haman's own wife. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Haman has a literal moment of falling that sets him up for an even greater fall. The end of verse 8 says, As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's, let's not overlook the irony here. It's Haman who wanted a Jew executed for not bowing to him, and yet it's Haman who's executed for inappropriately falling down before a Jew. And not just executed, but executed on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. In less than 24 hours, Haman goes from a boastful public reading of his resume among family and friends to a shameful, humiliating death. It's an incredible reversal of destiny. And it's meant to teach us something ultimately about God. Namely, that God is working through his unseen hand of providence for the good of his people. See, if you read a lot of commentaries or watch enough sermons, you'll see people argue that the most pivotal moment of the story is Esther's declaration, if I perish, I perish, back in chapter 4. But it's not. The most pivotal moment in the entire story is the king's sleepless night. I'll give you two reasons why I would make that argument. I'm not going to get into the the nerddom of, of Hebrew literature with you this morning, but suffice it to say that there's a technique in Hebrew literature where... Uh, bookends would be created on the outside of a story leading to something at the core center of the story, communicating the most important thing about that story. And in the book of Esther, you have this theme of feasting that takes place. You see, the king throwing two feasts in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the sixth long uh, party that he threw across the empire. Anyone could come in. And then his week-long party for the citizens of the city of Susa. Uh, You see that in chapter 1. That's bookended with, we'll get there soon enough, the Jews' two feast days in chapter 9, verses 16 through 18 that close out the story. And then right here in the center of the story, you have Esther's two dinner parties. Chapter 5, we see the first one. Chapter 7, we see the second one. And right in the middle of all of that is the king's sleepless night. Chapter 6, verse 1. If that doesn't convince you, let me show you another, another way we see it. The book of memorable deeds, the chronicles of the king, are mentioned three times in the story of Esther. The first of those, chapter 2, verse 23, you get the first mention as uh, Mordecai uh, saves the life of the king uh, in the midst of an assassination plot. You get the final mention in chapter 10, verse 2 of the book of memorable deeds. Again, we'll get there in a few weeks. And you get one more mention of this book of memorable deeds right in the center of the story Chapter 6, verse 1, the reading of that book on the king's sleepless night. The most pivotal moment in the entire story, and guess who's nowhere to be found? Neither Esther nor Mordecai. 
The author's way of declaring that it's the unseen God who's ultimately in control of where this story's going. It's the unseen God who's ultimately at work in this incredible turning of the tables. J.D.A. Klein's in his commentary says it this way. It says, Whether it is the vacancy for a queen at the Persian court, the ascension of a Jewish queen, Mordecai's discovery of the plot, Esther's favorable reception by the king, the king's insomnia, Haman's early arrival at the palace, or even his reckless plea for mercy at Esther's feet, the chance occurrences have a cumulative effect. Each of these incidents regarded by itself might well appear to be the result of chance and to have no bearing whatever upon the success or otherwise of the great plot. But taken together, the element of chance disappears. They all converge upon one point. One supplements the other. The whole course of events is shaped by the guiding hand of the great unnamed. If we're honest, it's hard to live from within the story. Is it not? From within the story, we can't see what God's doing. From within the story, it seems as though God's timing is off. From within the story, it seems as though God's forgotten us at times. But the book of Esther declares something altogether different. The book of Esther reveals to us a God who knows exactly what he's doing. The book of Esther reveals to us a God whose timing is perfect. The book of Esther reveals to us a God who never forgets his people. See, see, here's the deal. One of the hardest things about preaching the book of Esther is going back and forth between the low altitude unpacking of the characters in the storyline to the high altitude story of what God is doing in redemptive history. And, and, and you, you just go back and forth, back and forth, and, and try not to overplay one at the expense of the other. But in terms of the high altitude significance of all of this, God is fulfilling his promises to his people. He's fulfilling the promise he made to our first parents in the garden in Genesis 3 to send a hero to rescue us from sin and death, to deliver the death blow to the serpent Satan's head. He's fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham to make him the father of many nations, to bless those who bless him and curse those who dishonor him. He's fulfilling the, the covenant he made with Israel at Mount Sinai at the beginning of their nation. And on and on we could go. Do you see it? This is the covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God at work here doing whatever it takes to make sure that his redemptive purposes are fulfilled. And this is a God, according to this book of the Bible, who doesn't just work through miracles. He works through the ordinary events of billions of people over the course of thousands of years to fulfill his promises and accomplish his purposes. And you're one of those people. From within the story, it doesn't always make sense. I mean, for crying out loud, just look at the plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. It's not as if that plan is absent of some seemingly insurmountable obstacles, is it? It's a story that requires barren women to give birth. It's a story that requires God to rescue his people from enslavement to one of the most powerful kingdoms of its time. It's a story here in Esther that requires the halting of a plan of mass genocide. And even as Jesus shows up on the scene, it's a story that requires Jesus to escape the clutches of King Herod as a baby, that he escaped the clutches of the Pharisees on a number of occasions. As Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we would expect God to bring about some sort of conflict resolution at that point, right? Kind of like when Esther comes in and says, if I perish, I perish, and she finds favor in the eyes of the king. But the story's not over there. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey 
We would expect conflict resolution, but just the opposite happens. Judas betrays Jesus, his friends abandon him, and the courts condemn him to death. The exact opposite of Mordecai. Mordecai went from a death sentence to a parade around the city. Meanwhile, Jesus went from a parade around the city to a death sentence. What is God doing? Does he have any sense of timing? This is his son. This is the rescuer he's sending. And yet, the story has all these highs and lows and and the absence of conflict resolution, right as we would expect some. From within the story, it appears as if all hope is lost, as if God has lost control of everything. But, But we know how the story goes, right? Even as Jesus lay in a cold, dark tomb, God had one more card to play. And he did. He had an ace up his sleeve. The resurrection, three days after all hope seemed to be lost, he raised Jesus from the grave, triumphant over Satan, sin, and death, fulfilling the promise he made all the way back in a garden so very long ago. Christian, that's your God. That's your God. A God who's never, never confused by your circumstances. Can I just stop and say my own heart needs to hear this this morning? A God who's never surprised by the timing of anything that takes place in your life. Not one single event. A God who's always working to fulfill his promises to his people through both the joys and the sorrows of life. Key theological point there. Karen Job says it this way. She says, life's circumstances can be tragic, ugly, and destructive. Like the plot to annihilate the Jews of Persia initiated on the eve of Passover. The death of a loved one. Serious illness, wayward children, broken relationships, shattered hopes and dreams. All are links in the uninterrupted chain of life. While none of these things is good in itself, even in the worst of life's circumstances, God is working to fulfill his perfect promises. One thing leads to the next. The path to the joy God promises may wind through the swamps of suffering and despair. It's the way of the cross. In this morning's passage, we we see Haman pay for his own crimes, hanged on the gallows in shame. The gospel declares another who hung before the masses in, in shame, but not for his own crimes. Jesus hung on a splintered Roman wooden cross, bearing the king's wrath for our crimes, securing the greatest reversal the world has ever known. Makes the story of Esther look sad and pathetic, a JV version of a turning of the tables. Haman's reversal of destiny was one of joy turned to sorrow, whereas Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. So that if you're a Christian, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you have been established among God's new covenant people. And what that means is that God is working through his unseen hand of providence for your good, regardless of how things appear from within the story. We sang about it. James read it earlier, Romans chapter 8. Verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us, Paul says, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? And Paul's answer is no. Shall distress? And Paul's answer is no. Shall persecution? And Paul's answer is no. How about famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Paul would say no, 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 and no. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. There's your junk drawer category, in case you think Paul left something out. Nothing, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's the same covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God he's always been. His people will not suffer forever, and his enemies will not prosper forever. And so we're faced with a question as we read a passage like this. Whose side are you on? The beauty of the gospel is is that it declares a God who would die in the place of his enemies. A God who would die for the Haman in all of us. And so if you're not a Christian, I invite you to come this morning to the foot of the cross with nothing more than your sin in the empty hands of faith, confessing Jesus as Savior and King. Come over to the winning side. And if you are a Christian, we have an opportunity this morning to soak in the beautiful truth that Jesus bore our pride on the cross. He died for the Haman and all of us. We've talked about that before in this series. Freeing us from the empty chase of self-exaltation. We can stop grasping at the center because there's one more worthy of the center than us. And we can know the joy and freedom of not having to live that way, not having to live like Haman. And not only that, This morning, and this might be the biggest response, the biggest application, we have an opportunity this morning to declare to our sovereign, wise, and good God that we trust him. Particularly with those things that from within the story don't seem to make any sense to us right now. We worship a God who never stops working through his unseen hand of providence for his glory and our joy and good.